Imagine a robot. Go on, take a second to conjure up an image of a robot in your head. Is it electronic, made of wires and metal parts? Does it have a voice with a British accent? Well, prepare to have your image of a robot turned completely on its electronic head. This episode, we're turning our focus to a new class of robots, ones that live inside a Petri dish. You'd see what looks like a collection of moving specks of black pepper. They're just visible. They're a little less than a millimeter in diameter. There's a new brand of scientific field that combines the power of computer thinking with biological parts to create what may be deemed alien technology. Hopefully they can be useful scientific tools. So a new type of telescope, a new type of microscope. The xenobots may allow us to peer into biology in ways that are difficult or impossible to do now. Xenobots are brand new organisms made up of organic matter, but built by AI. They have the potential to help solve some of the world's biggest problems, from treating medical conditions to fighting climate change. There'll be small machines that can enter the ocean, that can enter the human body and do useful work in places that are hard to reach using other machines. And hopefully there'll be a large number of engineering applications. This combination of AI and biology is nascent, cutting-edge technology, and it holds the potential to completely transform our future. I'm Kristen Meinzer, and this is Innovation Uncovered from Invesco QQQ. This episode, I'm chatting with Josh Bongard, a professor and expert of evolutionary robotics at the University of Vermont, and Mike Levin, professor of biology at Tufts University. They're two of the brilliant minds shaping the new frontier of xenobots, aka living robots. Hello, Josh and Mike. I am so excited to have you here with us today. Hi, Kristen. Nice to meet you. Thank yeah, you. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Can you just tell us when and how the two of you met? I organized a small symposium on the North Shore of Boston, and I invited a few people I thought would push some of these unique things forward. And I invited Josh and he came. And I think that's when, was it 2012, I think it was, right? That that's that right. symposium was, yeah. From my perspective, it was all about trying to understand the role that the body plays in intelligence. There's this prevailing view in AI, at least, that the brain equals intelligence. And Mike's group for many years has been working to try and demolish that concept. And I think this symposium was one step along that progression. And how has your mind melding been working for the two of you after that symposium? Josh is a robotic specialist and Mike, you're the biology specialist. Where do those two meet? So... What I wanted to do was two things, to import some of the ways that people in robotics and computer science were thinking about information in, in unconventional media. So in traditional robots, in all kinds of artificial media for software and so on, and try to use some of that to understand what the biology was doing. And then I hope to do the reverse as well, is to take some things that we've learned in biology and see if they can be used to build novel, cool engineering artifacts, you know, autonomous systems, robotics, whatever. And I, I mean, I've learned a huge amount from Josh. The way that they think about these things is incredibly valuable for biology. And so, yeah, for me, it's been very sort of smooth and very educational. Now, I got to say, I think a lot of people listening right now are going to be thinking, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Applying certain biological 
behaviors or sensibilities to robots. We already do that. For example, making robots, you know, cute enough and they behave in a way that seems to be in some ways informed by what humans like or how biology works. But you also said you're working on things the other way around. You are essentially applying robotics to biology as well. And that's where we get to what's called, I guess, a living robot. Is that right? You know, in the past, it was really easy to tell which is which, right? You would sort of walk over and, and kind of knock on it. And if you hear a clangy metallic sound, you can assume that it was made by humans in a factory and it would have a limit of things that it could do. And then conversely, if it was squishy and wet or, or whatever, you would say, ah, this is a piece of biology. It evolved and I need to be nice to it and various other things follow. Those distinctions while really strong in people's minds and make people really uncomfortable when you um, point out that they're actually not very good, they are a limitation of the things we didn't know and things we couldn't do before and that they're not actually deep at all and that there are lots of things from the science of robotics that help us to understand what biology is doing and some of the really big knowledge gaps in biology. And conversely, it means that things you learn from biology could probably be used in, in robotics. Now, Josh, mm -hmm. can you tell us in the simplest of terms, what is a living robot? For better, for worse, most of us have received a robotics education from Hollywood. Yes. If you go much further back to 1920, uh, a Czech playwright named Karl Kapek wrote a play called Rossum's Universal Robots. The original Czech title, it was Robota. And back then in the 1920s, this idea of this machine was somehow a, a slave or a worker or did something on behalf of humans. And in that play, that was the very first use of the word robot. Rossum's universal robots were made from some strange biological protoplasm. Ironically, in synthetic biology and some of the work that Mike and I are doing is getting back to this original idea of making useful machines or useful things, but building them out of squishy parts, building them out of biological components. So returning to 2022, we think about robots now, we have to add the adjective living to remind ourselves that we're building robots not out of what Hollywood has conditioned us to think about, but rather building robots out of living components, and in this case, frog cells. You call them xenobots. Can you explain why? Sure. The derivation of this name has two meanings. Um, first of all, the frog skin cells are taken from a particular frog known as Xenopus lavis. Therefore, Xenobot. But Xeno in Greek also has uh, a meaning of stranger or newcomer or eerie or alien. Xeno as strange and Xeno as borrowed from a particular species of frog. So uh, we published three papers on the Xenobots to date. In the second and third paper, we're using just skin cells. Mm. And why is that? So in the first paper where we combined frog skin and frog heart muscle tissue, the heart muscle tissue was basically the motors of the robot. This particular tissue, it's derived and related to the heart. Those cells will increase and decrease in volume. And if you put them together in the shape of an adult frog heart, they will pump blood in and out of the heart. In the case of the Xenobot, we rearrange those heart muscle tissues and they, again, increase and decrease in volume. So they act like very small random pistons and they allow the Xenobot to walk along the bottom of a Petri dish. But most of us have probably walked along the bottom of a swimming pool. You can't move very quickly. It's better to <laughs> swim. So in Xenobots 2.0 and 3.0, which are built only from skin cells, 
The skin cells have very small hairs known as cilia, and these are like flexible ores. The skin cells beat these ores back and forth, and the collective action of all of these cilia cause the xenobot to swim through the fresh water in the Petri dish, and they're able to move much faster. And if I were to look at that Petri dish, would I be able to see it with my naked eye? You'd see what looks like a collection of moving uh, specks of black pepper. They're oh. just, just visible. They're a little less than a millimeter in diameter. So shape is a central piece of the Xenobot technology so far. The shape is the programming of the Xenobots. The current Xenobots have no neurons inside. There's no circuitry inside the Xenobot. So there's no brain, so to speak. Instead, the particular 3D shape of these Xenobots alters the distribution of these cilia. Because that distribution changes, the forces that are acting on the surface of this tiny creature change, which causes the way that it moves through the water. So the shape dictates the behavior. In this case, function follows form. Okay, so Mike, how much of this is the computer AI doing things and how much is it the cells on their own choosing to do what they want to do? That is a great question at the heart of, of this whole thing, because it's a real collaboration. There are th three parts to the system. There's us as the humans, there's the AI, and then there's the cells themselves. If we take these skin cells from an embryo, there's no um, any kind of nanomaterials. We're not adding anything. But what we do actually is to take something important away from them. What we take away are the instructive influences of the rest of the cells in the embryo that are normally forcing them to have a really boring two-dimensional life as the outer surface of a tadpole that's just going to keep out the bacteria and that's kind of it. What happens when you take these things and you put them in a new environment in the absence of those influences is you get to find out what do they actually want to do in the absence of those restrictive influences, which is a really weird kind of way to program robotics is instead of adding stuff, you're actually taking something away. It turns out that there's all this amazing capability that's actually normally suppressed by their environment. And what happens is when they're living liberated from the rest of the animal, they get a chance to kind of re-envision their multicellularity. And so they even figure out a new way to reproduce themselves when the original sort of froggy way of reproducing themselves is impossible to them now. They figure out a new way to do it. There's this amazing capacity for problem solving and plasticity that A, was not predictable, and B, we still don't know where it comes from. Because if you think about it, for every other life form on the planet, if you ask why does it look a certain way? The answer is always the same, because for millions of years, the ancestors were selected to be a very specific kind of thing. There was never selection to be a great xenobot, right? That just, <laughs> it never existed. You cannot use eons of evolutionary shaping as the explanation for why a xenobot does the things that it does. That still remains a very active area of investigation is actually where do these come from? When we start to look at the intersection of the control by the AI, the human experimenter, and what the cells want to do on their own, the outcome is actually a very complex function of all three of those things. And then our goal and the goal of the AI that Josh makes is to shift those to outcomes that we like. You know, that's the robotics angle. What kind of computer or technology are you actually using to program these? My understanding is there's something called a supercomputer at the University of Vermont. How does that all work with these individual cells that just want to do what they want to do? As we're learning more about the biology of what cells want to do, we're trying to explain that to the AI in code. 
We take that AI, which is a piece of computer code, and we run it, as you mentioned, on our supercomputer here at the University of Vermont. It's a big room. There are uh, air conditioners blowing 24-7, these big machines that are humming away and blinking lights. And if you were to look inside one of these supercomputers, you'd see something that looks like the Matrix. It's a virtual world. In our case, it's a virtual Petri dish. And inside that virtual Petri dish, the AI, which again is still a computer program, that AI is putting red and green simulated Lego bricks together in various permutations and combinations. And then the AI watches what that virtual Xenobot does in the virtual Petri dish. Mm. It tries out one of these combinations of Lego bricks It writes down a number, which is how well the virtual Xenobot does, is whatever we want it to do. It deletes that virtual Xenobot, makes a second virtual Xenobot by putting these virtual cells, these red-green Lego bricks together in another combination, and repeats and repeats billions of times. So this is why we use an AI, is it can try out all the combinations and permutations of rearranging frog cells. As it's watching this process, the AI deletes those virtual xenobots that don't do a good job. So, for example, those that swim more slowly or Mm. replicate worse than others. And the surviving virtual xenobots, the AI makes a copy of those virtual xenobots. But when it copies a virtual xenobot, it intentionally introduces mistakes. So the new virtual xenobots are slightly different combinations— of virtual cells. And when those child xenobots are put in the virtual Petri dish, they do slightly different things. This type of code, it's called an evolutionary algorithm. It's an algorithm that simulates evolution inside a supercomputer. At the end of this evolutionary process, the AI gives us back a single blueprint for a single xenobot. And the AI, in effect, says, I think this is the best xenobot design. If you build this from real frog cells, I predict that it'll do what you want it to do in reality. The collaboration between Josh, a roboticist, and Mike, a biologist, is a relatively new pairing. With their contrasting backgrounds, they've been able to put their minds together with their team to discover ways to research and develop self-replicating, reconfigurable organisms. Josh and Mike say that xenobots may become a new scientific tool, allowing humans to navigate uncharted territory via the collective behavior of their cells. Did you guys actually invent xenobots? What, What kind of technology existed before you started working on them? So this idea of biobots existed before. What is, to my knowledge, completely new here are a couple of things. One is, of course, the use of an artificial intelligence in the loop so that it's not a human making all the decisions about what's going to happen. And the fact that we are really taking advantage for the first time of the intelligence of the biology here, because we didn't micromanage all the pieces. We don't have control over everything it's going to do. We are really taking advantage of the fact that the cellular collectives, even more than the individual cells, have their own behavioral repertoire that we can make use of. There's another uh, stream of technologies known as organoids. So these are organs on a chip, which is a very exciting technology, may also contribute greatly to our understanding of biology and regenerative medicine. 
But before xenobots, none of these organoids moved. They were imprisoned on a chip. And for many people, the moment you see something that's created by a human, or in our case, created by an AI that's moving itself from point A to point B and hopefully doing some useful work along the way, it now starts to look more like a robot rather than a non-moving, stable piece of technology. And Josh, what kind of useful work? You just said these xenobots can do useful work. Can you give us examples of what different xenobots are doing or can do or what you hope they'll do down the road? It's possible that the xenobots will be useful engineering tools. There'll be small machines that can enter the ocean, that can enter the human body and do useful work in places that are hard to reach using other machines. And hopefully there'll be a large number of engineering applications. But in the longer term, hopefully they can be useful scientific tools. So a new type of telescope, a new type of microscope. The xenobots may allow us to peer into biology in ways that are difficult or impossible to do now. And that may greatly deepen our understanding of biology, of ourselves. And as you can probably imagine, the engineering applications like finding microplastics in our waterways, detecting contaminants in the soil, inspecting the root systems of plants in vertical farms or hydroponic farms, anything where you want a small machine to do useful work in fresh water, those hopefully will appear before not too long. And Mike, what's your take on this? From your perspective, what can we expect from xenobots? How do they behave? The thing about what life does is that it has competency at every level. So in a normal organism, the organism is intelligent and you can watch the organism do things and solve problems. But so are the individual organs of that organism and the tissues and the cells and in fact the molecular networks inside those cells. They are all competent in the sense that they are solving their own little problems in various spaces. These might be problems around ma making sure the physiology is within correct bounds. They might be solving the problem of, hey, how do we make a correct, let's say, frog, or what does what a correct frog even look like, right? And so they're constantly solving these kinds of problems. And this means that when you make a robot out of living parts, it's a collaboration. Your job is to provide some signals that either convince, motivate, or push the system to do things that you want done, but you're not having to specify all of the functionalities. The most important thing you can expect for these robots to have that traditionally is hard to engineer is preferences. They are going to have their own agendas about what it is that they prefer, various conditions a funny story is when my kid was little, he wanted to do a robotics project. And he says, let's make a robot cat. And they said, well, let's make a list. What do you want this thing to do? And he says, well, I want it to walk around and we can kind of do that. And I want it to, you know, to, to eat and we can kind of do that. Then he said, well, the third thing, and I want it to care. And I said, well, well, now we're done because how do you, how, you know, how are we going to make it? And I said, you want it to like, well, walk over to you and pretend it likes you and they'd act in a certain way. I said, no, 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 no. Even no, no, real no. cats won't do that. Well, that's a different, that's what my <laughs> wife pointed out that real cats don't care either. But, but um, I'm just curious about how the xenobots reproduce or replicate. Do they do that all on their own? Do you have to help them? How does that work? As Mike mentioned, when you liberate these cells, when you free them from the frog embryo, they tend to bunch up into a sphere of frog cells. These spheres grow these cilia. Doug Blackiston, our microsurgeon, came up with the idea of sprinkling more frog cells into the dish. So these are individual loose frog skin cells. So now you have a whole bunch of these spherical xenobots that are moving about in the dish, and they end up pushing these loose cells into piles. 
And if these piles are large enough, if they have more than 50 cells, after a couple of days, these piles grow their own hairs or cilias on their surfaces, and these now child xenobots start to move. That's the replicative process. We brought in the AI then to say, can you find a different shape, something other than a ball of cells that will produce bigger children, more children that produce children of their own, and so on. The AI hummed away on a supercomputer for a few weeks and came back with it a new design, which looks exactly like the Pac-Man character from the 1980s video game. The Pac-Man with their mouths are able to push more cells into more piles and produce more children and improve or accelerate this replicative process. That is such a magical way to make a family, isn't it? Like, here's some loose cells. Let's build a sandcastle together. Oh, it's alive. It's our baby. It's certainly different from anything you see in nature. And that's, again, one of the surprising things about xenobots. Now, I get it. You might be skeptical. All of this may conjure up imagery of a weird, squishy, rise-of-the-killer-frog-skin situation. Maybe you watch a lot of apocalyptic movies. Maybe you don't. But Josh and Mike say that it's very unlikely xenobots will conquer the world. In fact, it may be just the opposite. Our future livelihood may depend on them. The team on the Xenobots project are hopeful for future applications of this technology. But for now... Any talk of that future is theoretical. Can we talk about some of the long-term goals for xenobots, other things that they may be able to do, maybe, you know, long after we're all dead and gone, but for future generations? What is possible? So the 1940s, just towards the end of the Second World War, one of the pioneers of computer science, John von Neumann, came up with this thought experiment. Von Neumann said, imagine in the distant future we're able to make robots where a robot makes copies of itself and those copies make copies of copies and so on. You'd have a self-replicating set of robots. He was the very first one who sort of came up with this idea of self-replicating machines, which the xenobots are now a real example of to some extent. You can ask the obvious question, which is, why the heck would you possibly want to do such a thing? <laughs> Probably not a good idea just to do it for the sake of doing it. Von Neumann continued on and said, imagine that these self-replicating machines, in addition to just making offspring, they also do some useful work along the way. Whatever that useful work may be, cleaning up microplastics, building a colony on Mars, and then on the moons of Jupiter, and then onward and outward. If you get these self-replicating machines to do some useful work, by definition, because they replicate, they make more of themselves, they'll do more useful work as time passes. It's also useful from an economic point of view. If you want to try and solve an environmental problem here on Earth, you need to spend more money to build more machines to go out and put out forest fires or clean up lakes and rivers and soils. But if you have a self-replicating machine that can fix one small part of the environment and you release that machine and it makes more machines that clean up more parts of the environment, it's much more economically feasible to solve the problem. Now, again, this is all theoretical xenobots. We're not going to release xenobots anytime soon. But that's the long-term vision is to create things that replicate and do more and more useful work on behalf of humans in a controlled and safe way. 
Xenobots as they currently exist is our test bed, our way of figuring out whether we can do this safely, and if so, at what scale and what kinds of jobs can we get these bots to solve in this way. And as we start to understand Xenobots better, and as the AI starts to understand Xenobots better, then together we can sit down and really get serious about creating useful and safe Xenobots. How many people are in that together with you? How many people are on your team? We started with four, Mike, myself, Doug Blackiston, our microsurgeon, and my former graduate student, Sam Kriegman, who did all the coding on this project. But our team, as you can imagine, is rapidly growing. One thing to keep in mind in all of this is the greater purpose here, which is that in the end of understanding biology, understanding biological controls, understanding how intelligence and behavior arises from these physical embodiments, we are going to be able to help an incredible number of beings, both both human and non-human. That is a not only an appropriate, but actually an ethically imperative way to relate to these organisms, is to use them to understand where biological intelligence comes from and how we can relate to the kinds of living things that are already on Earth and the new ones that are going to be here. Josh, Mike, this has been such a delight. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was our pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Innovation Uncovered from Invesco QQQ. On the next episode, we'll hear from Phil Galler, founder and co-president of Lux Machina, a company that develops and engineers innovative solutions for TV, film, live events, and beyond. We're trying to find avenues for people to tell new stories in the way that they want to tell them. So um, helping to redefine the human experience, helping to create virtual experiences and tie them to physical experiences in a way that really is a cohesive experience both for the storyteller and for the viewer and using technology really to empower creativity. Subscribe to Innovation Uncovered. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Season two of Innovation Uncovered is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, ordinary people who shape the future by putting their money behind the right ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you to access the innovators of the NASDAQ 100, so you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. To learn more about what this fund can mean for your portfolio, visit Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks involved with investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs are subject to risks similar to those of stocks. Investments focused in the technology sector are subject to greater risk and are more greatly impacted by market volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies traded on the NASDAQ. An investment cannot be made directly into an index. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers, are based on current market conditions and are subject to change without notice. These opinions may differ from those of other Invesco investment professionals. Invesco is not affiliated with T-Brand Studio, Kristen Meinzer, or any of the subjects or companies referenced in this episode. This content should not be construed as an endorsement for or a recommendation to invest in any of the companies referenced in this episode. Invesco Distributors, Inc.